their record label High Tide Recordings. We're opening episode 414 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Sunset Rider. It's from the band The Volcanics. Their new album, Forgotten Cove, is coming out next week on April 19th. You can find out more about them at thevolcanics.com. And if you happen to be in Las Vegas, they're going to be playing at the Viva Las Vegas Tiki Pool Party April 19th through the 21st. Check out thevolcanics.com and let them know that you heard them here on the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. My name is Derek M. Cook and I want to welcome you to the show. And we've got an important episode this time around. I'm calling it important because, well, it's about a very important film. We're going to be talking about the movie Metropolis. Yes, the original Metropolis, the silent film, the classic science fiction film from Germany going to be talking about this movie, going to reveal a few things about my own history, or lack thereof, with the movie, and going to talk about it with a friend of mine by the name of Charles Babbage. Now, if you listened to previous episodes of the Kaiju cast, you might have heard him over there. This is the first time he's appearing on Monster Kid Radio, but it will not be the last, because I had such a good time chatting with Charles about Metropolis. And then, somehow or other, we ended up talking about men in ape suit movies and Charlie Gamora. I, I don't know how that happened, but we brought it back down to Metropolis and then, yeah, I kind of wrapped up the conversation. Anyway, Metropolis, it's such an amazing, beautiful film. I can't wait for you to hear Charles and I gush all about it. Now, before you hear that, of course, we've got Kenny's look at famous monsters of film land, and we're going to find out how Metropolis was referenced in the iconic magazine, considering that Forrest J. Ackerman cited Metropolis as his favorite film. I'm real curious to see how Famous Monsters covered the movie. Also, we have another bedtime story. Jerry Green presents us Professor Frenzy's bedtime stories presented exclusively here on Monster Kid Radio. Big thanks to him for providing us. I want to get to all that, but first, I want to play a voicemail that came from one of our listeners about the recent passing of a very important horror host. Hi, Derek. Captain Billy here. I've never called the show before, so I'm a infrequent caller uh, the B movie cast, and that's how I found your show, and I've been listening since somewhere before episode 150, I know that, back when the show was in two pieces. You know, I never did understand why you broke it into two pieces, so the reason I'm calling, I'm from uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, someone very important to me passed away back on April 1st, Ron Swede, uh, was the ghoul here in Cleveland, a horror host, and I don't, I'm on Facebook infrequently, so I'm, maybe this is all old news, but Ron was on in Cleveland posting horror movies uh, in the 70s and the 80s and even into the 90s and on the internet all the way into the 2000s. So the Ron was very important to me. And that's, again, I wanted to make sure – I'll get to it. But let me give you a brief history of Ron as much as I can in the time allotted. Uh, he started as a protege to Ernie Anderson Goularty, you know, that Goularty, back in the 60s. Uh, the story goes that Ernie – Ron acquired a gorilla suit, let's just say, and uh, he showed up at uh, an appearance of Ernie's at uh, Euclid Beach Park, a local amusement park, in the summer of 64, 65, wearing the full-blown gorilla suit in the July 90-degree-plus heat and being led around by one of his friends on a chain. Ernie noticed him from the stage, this poor person in the audience killing himself, and he dragged him, he brought him up on stage. And what transpired on stage is lost to history, but uh, because of that, Ernie and Ron became friends, and... Ron became Ernie's uh, production assistant, essentially a gopher. He opened the mail, fetched coffee. So you take the bus downtown from Euclid to uh, Cleveland a couple times, two, three times a week to help him out. 
and eventually that evolved into a production job with Ernie's successor. Ernie left in 66, and uh, Big Chuck Shadowski was Ernie's floor manager, and he ended up being in a lot of Ernie's sketches against his will, and he ended up taking over the show. So Ron helped him out there. So Ron eventually went to school at uh, Bowling Green University, and he graduated in 71, and when he got done... He called Ernie up and asked him to come back to Cleveland and revive the ghoul character, and Ernie had no interest in coming back. He went to California at the assistance of his friend Tim Conway. Tim, yes, that Tim Conway, Mikhail's Navy, Carol Burnett, you know, the Disney movies. Yeah, that Tim Conway. Ernie and uh, Tim were uh, friends in Cleveland. They had done a lot of sketches together. They recorded three comedy albums together. The Internet will tell you all about it. So Ernie tells Ron, look, I'm not interested in coming back. Why don't you take the character over and make it your own? Don't do exactly what I did. Do it you make it Ron's character, not Ernie's character. So that's why Goulardi turned into the ghoul. The difference would be the difference between like Ernie was like a beatnik. He was yeah, there's some crazy stuff and he blew stuff up. Ron was kinda of like an anarchist. He blew up lots of stuff. I mean he took the fringier parts of Ernie and made him even crazier. There was a subtleness to Ernie that Ron you know. Ron, like I said, Ron turned everything up to 11. So the show starts. He goes to uh, Channel 61 locally, WKBF, at Kaiser Broadcasting, and he uh, brings the show to them, and they were interested, and they bring the show in the, up uh, in 1971 is when the ghoul starts, and it goes till 1975 for whatever reason. I don't know if Kaiser went out of business, or but Channel 61 shut down in the summer of 75, and that's where the ghoul went. But the show is popular enough in Cleveland that Kaiser Broadcast syndicated him into Boston and California and to Chicago and into Detroit. And the show took off in Detroit. It was much bigger in – if you live in Detroit and you were around in the 70s, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Ron took off in the uh, 70s. And uh, the story I had heard that Ron used to uh, make fun of local Cleveland celebrities, and the people in Detroit had no clue who he was talking about. <laughs> There's a local broadcaster named Dorothy Fulltime. Uh, her name was Dot. He called her Dot on the air, and he would poke fun at Dorothy all the time. And Ryan even told the story once. Um, Dorothy worked at Channel 5 locally, and he had to visit somebody, a friend of his at Channel 5 one time. He walked out the door, and in comes Dorothy, and he holds the door open for this nice young man. And Dorothy did not like the ghoul making fun of her every weekend, so here's the ghoul holding the door open. <laughs> this nice young man holding the door open for Dorothy full-time, the Cleveland legend. Anyway, it's, if you live here, it's funny. So, I mean, if you don't know... Exactly. I, I was there. I remember all this when I was a kid. So, Anyway, the um, show went till 75. Like I said, it took off in Detroit. I guess the Kaiser must have gone out of business because uh, I guess the Kaiser channel in Detroit went down, and they but they moved over to another channel right away. So, again, show carried on Detroit until the at least the, somewhere in the 80s because when Channel 61 came back in Cleveland in 1981, they brought the ghoul back. But now he was on Saturday afternoons instead of Saturday night for I don't know what the reasoning is behind that. So the show leaves... In 86, Cleveland, and Ron worked at General Electric locally in Cleveland. So there's a factory here in Cleveland, and he, I don't know what he did there. He's no where, he, where he spent the dark years. The Ghoul wasn't the most profitable venture for any other horror host who's listening. Those you don't make a lot of money being a horror host. Uh, when the show went off the air in Cleveland, but was a huge hit in Detroit, Ron moved to Detroit and tried to um, make a go of it just being the Ghoul. I was at a convention years ago with a gentleman named Dave Ivey, who used to do the animation for uh, Ron. He did animated stuff, literally the way South Park did, like cardboard cutouts on a kitchen table. And Dave would also make uh, Ron Froggy dolls. Froggy was a gremlin. He used to be on the Andy Devine show in the 50s. 
And Ernie had one of these left over from being a kid, and he used the Froggy doll on his show, and it was you know, on two strings, and Froggy would come out and make fun of the ghoul, and the ghoul would cover him in cheese whiz or blow him up with firecrackers or whatnot. And eventually, your, your little rubber Froggy doll will get to, gets a beating. So Dave, I used to carve Froggy dolls out of styrofoam for him and make them into puppets, and eventually someone made a full-blown Froggy costume for somebody to wear. So Froggy was a Ron sidekick, essentially, the ghoul sidekick on the show. So Ron moves to Detroit, and he's living literally off of hot dogs and um, macaroni and cheese and come over to Dave Ivey's house about four times a week for dinner, him and his wife. So uh, there were lean years for Ron there. Eventually, he talked somebody at Channel 55 locally in Cleveland to put the rule back on in 1998. That show ran until 2004 or so. Uh, and eventually he carried the character onto the, the internet, the ghoul.net, was ran for about seven years also. So Ron loved being the ghoul, is what I'm trying to get to here. He was in the St. Patrick's Day Parade every year, and and the whole reason for this phone call is Ron had a heart attack last year in November, and he uh, had triple bypass surgery. And uh, I promised myself this year I was going to try to get Ron a Rondo Award for uh, the Hall of Fame, and by the time I had heard the Rondos had started, voting was already half over, and yeah, him and yaha, and uh, so yeah, I never got around to you know trying to do, start a campaign up to get Ron a Rondo. And like I said, Ron was really important to me, and that's why I'm calling. Uh, the reason I'm in the see warped my little kid brain. My mother, God love her, I used to uh, have to take a bath every Saturday night, whether I needed one or not, and she used to let me lay in her bed to dry off, and I got to watch the ghoul on Saturday nights. And fall asleep to, you know, monsters and explosions. So, like I said, uh, Ron meant a lot to me. Like I, the reason I was into this is, yeah, just like I said, you used to get to stay up late nights. I mean, we were lucky in Cleveland. We had three different horror hosts to pick from. We had super hosts, Poulahan and Big Chuck and the Ghoul growing up. I was very fortunate. But the Ron was the one I loved the most out of all of them. He, uh, like I said, it was just that craziness. I mean, I'm in the, I, I get into all the, uh, all the oddball crap that nobody else is into, I'm into because of Ron, you know, because Ron was big into the oddball music. And, well, Ron loved his Beatles. He promoted the Beatles and the, over and over again on that show. He had that last show, and then Paul McCartney put an album out, and there was like three episodes devoted to that new album he put out. So, Anyway, I'm blathering. In the words of the ghoul, scratch class, turn blue, climb walls, do what you can, but most important of all, don't get caught. occult world of necromancy. You were brought here for one purpose. Necromancy. A ceremony dating back to the pre-Christian era is the art of reviving the dead. It requires involvement with evil spirits by the person performing the act. The devil god brings life to the dead. No! No, no, please! No, please! No. death to the living. Necromancy. Starring Orson Welles and Pamela Franklin. From Cinerama releasing. In color, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. How often has this happened to you? You're on your way home after a long day when suddenly tragedy strikes. Go 
human mind could imagine the enormous destructive power of this maddened, killing thing. Professor, there's a big lizard back there and he's heading this way. Now get aboard! It's the kind of thing which can ruin your weekend. To prevent catastrophe, you need the Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack. This book features extensively researched methods to help you survive a giant monster event. You'll discover which vehicle you should use for making your escape, which method of counterattack is best for specific types of monsters. Hydrogen weapons, capable of wiping cities, countries off the face of the earth, are completely ineffective against this creature from the skies and what common mistakes people make while fighting back. So pick up your copy of The Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack by Anthony Wendell today on Amazon. You can thank us by surviving. When modern Navy scientists defy the unknown mysteries of the past, perpetuated by centuries of native belief, then nature strikes in all its vengeance in the unbelievable. For generations, the legend was passed on. They said Varan was there, deep in the still waters. They said, let Varan sleep. That lake water is going to be contaminated after we finish the tests. Probably affect the fish, too. We just can't take any chances. But those people have depended on their lake for their livelihood all their lives. And their parents before them. Anna, now should we be this concerned about a handful of people when we might perfect something that could benefit all mankind. Hmm? All right, Jim. But the Navy commander would not heed their warning. He moved forward, ever searching, ever probing, deeper and deeper, until it was too late. Veron rose from the depths slowly, unrelentingly, to wreak its vengeance on a civilization that wanted to know too much. Tumultuous. Terrifying. So awesome it will shock you to the core. Buran, the unbelievable. Professor Frenze, it's a show. Professor Frenze, show. Professor Frenze, it's a show. Professor Frenze, show. Welcome to Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories, created especially for Monster Kid Radio. My name is Jerry Green. In this segment, I'm going to tell you some stories contained in the EC Horror Comics. Today's story is House of Horror, from The Haunt of Fear, number 15, the May-June issue from 1950. It was written by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, and the art was by Harvey Kurtzman. So sit back, relax, and prepare for a chilling tale. The college fraternity Gamma Delta is having its yearly freshman initiation. For the past 15 years, the frat has made their pledges find their way through the old Palmer House. The house is a creepy old Victorian wreck of a place. One dark and moonlit night, the senior frat members collect outside the house with the three Gamma Delta pledges, Henderson, Waters, and Arling. The leader of the initiation, Les Wilton, is spinning tales about the haunted old house and scaring the freshmen. Even the other frat members think Les is laying it on a little thick. The plan is for each pledge to go into the house and shine a light at a window at each of the three floors. Once they reach the top floor, the next pledge would go in. Les had rigged a few scares for the freshmen. The first pledge to go into the house is Henderson. They all see Henderson's light shine through the window of the first floor. Then the second. They wait and wait, 
but they don't see the light at the third floor. Les is furious and sends water in for his turn. They see Waters' light on the first floor, then the second, but never the third floor. Everyone is getting worried and wondering if Les has pulled some kind of trick, but the senior is beside himself with anger at the failure of the two pledges to do as he ordered. He sends in Arling, who nervously does as he is told. Arling's light is seen at the first floor, then the second, but there is no third floor signal. Angrily, Les Wilton takes a flashlight and goes into the Palmer house himself. He goes to the first floor and breaks the window. He goes to the second floor and does the same, cursing the pledges all the while. But the frat members never see Les's light on the third floor. After a while, they reluctantly go in together through the creepy old manse up to the third floor attic. There they find Les Wilton sitting in a stupor with a head full of white hair. He is aged 50 years. The police are called and Les is removed from the house, his mind broken. The three freshman pledges are never found. What could Les have seen to drive him mad? We will never know. The End I hope you enjoyed that spooky tale. The plot was a slow burn with the sequence with each pledge repeating and Les getting madder and madder. The setup could have been explained a little better at the beginning, but after just a few panels, you get the idea. We never learn what happens to the freshman or what happened to Les's mind. Some modern readers may see that as a weakness, but it's something I remember from my old horror comic days, and I love it. It inspires my imagination much more than seeing a ghost or some kind of creature. Kurtzman's art especially stands out with its shading and contrast between light and dark. The house sometimes looms black and foreboding in the background with the students below. Lanterns cast bright light and then shadows across faces giving the whole scene an eerie feel. The people are sometimes drawn stiffly, but it all combines into an effective presentation. If you're interested in a copy of The Haunt of Fear, the book can be purchased on Amazon, and you can find a link to buy it on the MKR website. I hope you enjoyed the story. My name is Jerry Green, and you can find me on my podcast, The Professor Frenzy Show, where we talk about new indie comics, and Bat Books for Beginners, where we talk about historical Batman and Bat Family comics. You can also catch me on Twitter at Professor Frenzy, and search for Professor Frenzy on YouTube, where you can find The Professor Frenzy Show and some exciting projects we have coming up. Stay tuned. And thanks for listening. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. The only good human is a dead human. The bizarre world you met on the planet of the apes was just the beginning. What lies beneath may be the end. 20th Century Fox takes you beneath the planet of the apes. This is the year 3955 AD. The apes are building a war machine aimed at planet domination. Superhuman mutants strike back with new and terrifying weapons of the mind. In the atomic rubble of what was once the city of New York, civilization's final battle is about to begin. The only good human is a dead human! Beneath the planet of the apes, with James Franciscus, Kim Hunter, Maurice Evans, Linda Harrison, and Charlton Heston, can a world long endure half ape, half man? The answer lies deep 
beneath the planet of the apes. In color, rated G, general audiences. Dr. Tongue's I Had That Shot, 7129 Northeast Fremont Street. Vintage goofiness from years gone by. Sci-fi and fantasy memorabilia. We specialize in things your mother threw away. And some she didn't. Dr. Tongue's Toys. I am Dracula. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 Thousands. Millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula. The original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat and lured innocent girls to a fate Truly worse than death. Dracula? Oh, what, what's he done to you, dear? Tell me. He came to me. He opened a thing in his arms. And he made me drink. Monster Kid Radioheads, this is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. To my surprise, this week's film, Metropolis, did not appear in a feature article by itself in FM, though it is no secret that it was one of Forey Ackerman's all-time favorites. One of the most famous pieces of his vast collection was a life-size replica of the Maria robot from the film. I did find an interesting mention of the film and an obituary for its director, Fritz Lang. In issue 19 from September of 1962, Foray printed this announcement about a proposed remake of the film. You can gauge his love for Metropolis with his excitement about the remake, a remake that never happened. If there is one glowing, golden, breathtaking, mouth-watering reason to hope this dopey world holds together another season before losing its head completely and blowing its top, It's Stop the Press, the midnight message from Bert I. Gordon, that he is seriously interested in remaking one of the most remarkable, outstanding, enduring, fascinating, fabulous science and fantasy masterpiece this mad, mad, mad world has ever known. If The Lost World and The Phantom of the Opera and The Cabin of Dr. Caligari and Siegfried and Fairbanks Thief of Baghdad are remembered as sparkling gems of imagination, displayed on the silver screen before films learned to speak. The peak of technical achievement, imaginative power, visual wonder, unbridled drama, beauty and beastliness, macabre touches and marvels and miracles, all this was achieved by Fritz Lang and wrapped up in the one word of enchantment that spells the eighth wonder of the silent era of films, the blinding, spellbinding crown jewel of fantastic classics, 
Metropolis. And now, with all due respect for its awe-inspiring reputation, with the earnest desire to do justice to a new version, one that will live in the motion picture theaters of the world and on the television sets of multi-millions as the silent version has survived across a span of four decades in the memories of those who were staggered by it nearly 40 years ago. Burt Gordon has taken the initial giant step, set his daring feet on the challenging stairway to screen immortality climbed by Lang, DeMille, Powell. I have been told that Lang himself does not wish to tackle the task of recreating his masterpiece in modern times. Thus the torch, which must not be allowed to go out, is available to be passed to the hands of he who will dare to accept the responsibility. Burt Gordon has reached out. As I sit at my typewriter recording this announcement at half past midnight, I am as wide awake as though it were the blaze of high noon. I wonder if I will sleep again until I have beheld the new metropolis. And then, probably not for weeks. You'll join me, of course. Follow the development of the Metropolis story exclusively in FM. We all know that this remake did not come to pass. Burt Gordon instead went on to make Village of the Giants, Picture Mommy Dead, The Mad Bomber, Necromancy, Food of the Gods, and Empire of the Ants. Fritz Lang's obituary appeared in Famous Monsters 132 from March of 1977. Here are some of Foray's memories about the great Austrian director. I befriended him through the mail originally in 1931, and when he came to Hollywood, he had a dream of making a kind of sound metropolis. A prominent woman scripter of the day prepared a screenplay called Tomorrow. I told Lang I wanted to be present from the time the first prop was built till the last shot was in the can. I wanted to watch it all happen, see the daily rushes, the outtakes, the rough cut to the director's cut, to be present at the first preview. If you're that crazy, he said, you can live on the set. He alternated between thinking of me as a fiendish devil sent to plague him and a clumsy angel meaning, well, by him. He wearied of my insatiable appetite for more and ever more information about Metropolis. At last he gave me the key to the city and told a film audience in Rio de Janeiro who wanted to hear from him about the film, Forey Ackerman knows more about my picture than I do. When Prit Sirke took Fritz Lang's Leukemia Weakened Body from us, the great director had already been blind for some time. For as long as he was able, he had faithfully followed Dark Shadows on TV. And he and I sat in the front row together on opening day of Rosemary's Baby, a film he thoroughly enjoyed. He left behind a complete set of Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, near-mint copies of H.P. Lovecraft collector's items, The Outsider and Beyond the Wall of Sleep, and a not inconsiderable library of science fiction books. Some people were shocked to learn that there were only 12 persons present at Lang's funeral. It was not that he was a forgotten man, far from it. In fact, there was no funeral per se. His mortal remains were simply privately lowered into the earth in a floral wreathed casket. No words, no ceremony. He wanted it that way, wanted just to quietly fade away. His unique brain and energetic body are gone, but his powerful personality, rooted in realism yet simpatico to fantasy, will live on in his brain, children, and posterity will be the richer for the rare celluloid entertainments and insights left humanity in the corpus of Fritz Lang's filmic legacy.
This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky von Helsing. Listeners, if you had any idea how long I've been wanting to have this week's guest on the show to talk about this particular movie. I mean, I've talked about it here on the show before, but I mean, even longer than that, I wanted to have Charles Babbage join me here to talk about Metropolis. Welcome to the show, sir. Finally. Oh, thank you very much, Derek. I am excited to be here. It's been a little while. Uh, we've been talking about it for quite some time. You're local. Uh, we keep bumping into each other at different events, different films, and things like that. And I think the first time I met you was actually at a screening of Shin Godzilla. Uh, yeah, it just, you know, happenstance. You know, I go to Shin Godzilla with uh, my pal Kyle and the Kaiju Cast crowd, and you happen to be there. It was great. Great seeing the movie sitting next to you. Oh, man, that movie. I love that film. I saw it that night with you and the group, and uh, then I saw it again at another theater the following night. It was, oh, really? yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. And then we've bumped into each other a few times over the, I guess, couple of years now. Absolutely. Uh, different film screenings and things like that. I keep hearing you on the Kaiju Cast, or at least I used to, when you were on there on a more regular basis. And I'm just, I'm stoked to have you on MKR, man. And I'll be back on Kaiju Cast again at some point with uh, Kyle's final uh, batch of shows. You know, I'm going definitely pop in and, and say hi right on the goodbye tour for the kaiju cast is Absolutely. happening right now uh the, the 10th year of that amazing show which i mean you've heard me gush about kyle <laughs> and monster kid hall of fame he needs to get in and all that stuff so yes yeah he, he does he does godzilla's work He's yeah there the you go everybody <laughs> everybody go vote now your background with these movies though how, how long have you considered yourself a monster kid it's hard to say because it's since the beginning of time, it feels like, you know, I mean, <laughs> as a kid, I was raised on this stuff from a very young age. I was watching Star Trek. That was my babysitter in the 70s. You know, I mean, watching reruns of Star Trek as a very little kid and Six Million Dollar Man. And so genre stuff. And then when it comes to specifically monster movies, I think it had to be kicking in around, you know, not too long after that, you know, uh, Saturday afternoons on the local Channel 12, you know, we had... Godzilla movies, one of my number one loves there, always playing on Saturday afternoons, as well as various other genres and monster movies. And you get into a, a period there, you know, I hit 12 and, you know, it's all Fangoria and, you know, those 80s horror movies, you know, certainly took over. Sure. But the the heart of it, the the universals and, you know, a lot of the classics were still there. And uh, I've grown up, you know, I'm well, I don't even know if I'm still grown up, but uh, I love them. Yeah, I, I don't know if we ever really do grow up. I mean, we, we age. But do we really grow up? I mean, I, I don't want to, you know. I, I love having the childlike love of these films. I just adore them and they, you know, they keep me going. Exactly. Yeah. And, and like you, I did have that kind of period in the 80s and 90s where I was like, oh, Vangoria, Gorezone, yeah. yep. Tom Savini, all that stuff. Yeah. And, yep. you know, and that's part of what made me who I am. But Absolutely. I go back to the universals and everything else, you <laughs> know. And, and it's funny right now, I'm kind of reliving a lot of it again. I mean, your podcast actually is a really 
good excuse to to revisit movies. You know, I listen to it and you guys get into movies that I never heard of or ones that I'd forgotten about. And I get back around to watching them. And the best part is I'm experiencing it kind of new again because my daughter absolutely loves watching these. And so she always begs her favorite. You're going to love this. Her favorite monster is Dracula, Bella Lugosi. Yeah. For Christmas, she asked me for a picture of Bella Lugosi to hang on her wall. So, you know, <laughs> so I know I've done something right. And but, you know, she wants to watch these again. So I get to watch them again with her. That is a parenting win yes. right there. That is awesome. <laughs> yes. I love it. I love it, man. Well, one thing that we do here on the show, and not that you and I are going to have a hard time coming up with something to talk about. I, mean, <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious here. But for the listeners, to get to know you a little bit better, we have a game called The Classic Five. I've got a deck of cards here. Each one of these cards has a this or that. What movie do you prefer style question? There are no wrong answers. It's all about classic monsters and genre cinema. I know I just called it a game, but really it's an icebreaker conversation starter. Are you ready to play? I've been dreading this. So, yes. Oh, no. Here we go. <laughs> I think this is where we discover that I'm a lover, not an expert. You know what? If you're a fan, it doesn't matter. As long as, as, long as you like the movies, then you're, you're good in my book. There all right. Card, card number one. We'll, we'll, we'll start off easy. We'll pull this from the core deck. What's your favorite Vincent Price film? Oh, boy. It's a little bit out of the normal. It's kind of on the edge of the normal MKR wheelhouse, but I, I love Dr. Fives. What lovely music for a murder or two or three or nine. Who's this? Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to meet a dear friend. Nine killed you. Nine shall die. Your wife no fives. But you I will kill. But you can't, Doctor. I am already dead. Here, how are we going to get him off this? You take his head and I'll take his feet. Let's unscrew him. Doctor Vibes, who samples the finer things of life in his own inimitable way. Because uh, boils of bats. Frogs? Frogs, yes. And the curse of blood. Curse of hail in the bloody middle of nowhere. Are you ready for Dr. Five. I can't get enough of that movie, actually. I like watching it pretty regularly. That's a good one. You know, it's kind of like a proto-saw kind of thing. You know, it's got some great yeah. stuff in it. And just the imagery. You know, there's there's him sitting, there's uh, his disfigured face. He's sitting in front of that organ. That organ that has this bright fluorescent acrylic, uh, almost art deco backdrop to it. It's uh, I love that imagery from that movie. And it's a funny movie, too. On top of that, it's, it's pretty... Uh, dark what do you think of the sequel the follow-up that one doesn't stick in my head as much i have watched it uh not as much as the first one and i and i don't remember liking it as much the first one uh, you know i think is a better movie i agree i mean it's fun to see him again but yeah i agree all right card number two which sequel do you prefer better revenge of the creature or the creature walks among us it's funny you ask that because I had just watched both of those movies last week with my daughter. So uh, right on. Okay. very fresh in my head. And 
and watching them pretty close together, I think Revenge of the Creature is a much better movie. scientifically study a creature that, by all the laws of nature, should have died a quarter of a million years ago. They dared to bring him back alive from his haunts deep in the jungles of the Amazon. They dared to put him on display with the other denizens of the deep while thousands came to marvel and wonder. You know, I, I pity him sometimes. He's so alone, the only one of his kind in the world. If anything goes wrong, you head straight for the surface, you understand? All right, let's go. They dared to study him, to probe him, to tempt him with the lure of a woman's beauty, thinking that mere chains could hold in check the primeval forces that surged and roiled within this strange being from the dawn of time. Hello, you broke the chain! There's things about Creature Walks Among Us that I find interesting. The whole concept, it's kind of kind of dark in the end you know is what happens to the creature but because it's so isolated it's kind of the majority of that movie takes place on a boat i don't think it's as it's as interesting as revenge of the creature where he's breaking loose he's causing havoc on the beaches there in uh, well i guess it was florida but i don't know i think that movie is a much better movie i, I certainly enjoy it more okay i will say about the creature walks among us the one thing that i had forgotten about before watching it this last time is is it has two people from one of my other favorite movies in it and i was like wow i totally forgot these guys were together again that's this island earth you know you have the basically the cast reuniting in uh the creature walks among us or i guess was it the other way around did this no, come out no you're right yeah okay it was or yeah yeah this one hmm I can't I forget check. which one came yeah. out first. <laughs> I'd have to check. Yeah. Have to check. Rex Reason and uh, Jeff Morrow, you know, both popping up in the same movies. And that's actually what I like best about Creature Walks Among Us is the human story going on there, the weird love triangle kind of sort of yeah, thing it's happening. Pretty bizarre. I mean, yeah. it's 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 odd, but I I really like it. And Jeff Morrow is oh man, he's such a. I mean, he, I I kind of like him as Exeter, the alien in This Island Earth. I think he's a he's a sympathetic character. He's he's somebody. You know, you, at first he's kind of mysterious. You might think he's a bad guy, but he's actually just there to try to save his people. And in Creature Walks Among Us, he's a scumbag. He's a, he's a <laughs> terrible husband. It's pretty interesting. Well, he's a terrible human being. I mean, he does some pretty despicable things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. You know what? I'm going to pull the third card from our kaiju deck. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Which do you prefer, Rodan or Varan? Boy, I think Rodan. Monster of is a skyscraper. <laughs> When he moves, the whole earth quivers and quakes, and an abyss of horror opens up. See these prehistoric beasts emerge from the bowels of the earth after 200 million years to devastate mankind. Sonic jets cannot catch him. Rockets cannot stop him. Armored tanks are helpless before him. 
even guided missiles are powerless. See Rodin destroy a modern city, leveling it to the earth with a killing airstream of his mighty wings. When I was a kid, back in the early 80s, I had Super 8 uh, projectors, and or 8mm projectors, rather, and we could go down to the main public library downtown, and you could rent, just like you would rent VHS tapes or DVDs later, you could rent or check out from the library these 8mm movies, uh, and they're usually like two real movies, and that's actually the first time I saw Rodan. And oh, wow. I thought it was it's a very truncated version of Rodan and it and, and it didn't have audio. And so I reround and watched that movie. I don't know how many times I'm probably wore out that eight millimeter film from the library. I certainly grew an affection to the character just from that time period, just doing that, you know, that, that whole experience of the eight millimeter and that being the first time I experienced it. I don't know. I think I have a fondness for him just because of that. Yeah. I mean, this is why we're getting along because I love Rodan too. I, I love Varan. Varan's yeah. great and underrated. Doesn't get enough attention, but Rodan is my favorite non Godzilla Toho film. There's a good double disc of Rodan and war of the Gargantuas mm-hmm. uh, on DVD. That, that is, that is a winner. If you can find that one, that's a, it's a great double feature. Oh, indeed. Indeed. All right. So that was card number three. So card number four, what is your favorite monster plant movie? <laughs> uh, monster plant movie. Okay. This is going to be kind of on the edge of monster plant invasion of the body snatchers. But will you tell these fools I'm not crazy? Make them listen to me before it's too late. Listen to me. Please listen. If you don't, if you won't, if you fail to understand, and the same incredible terror that's menacing me will strike at you! No, no, you've got to get out of here, please! They come from another world spawned in the light years of space, unleashed to take over the bodies and souls of the people of our planet, bringing a new dimension in terror to the giant super scope screen. It's whatever intelligence or instinct it is that can govern the forming of human flesh and blood out of thin air is fantastically powerful, beyond any comprehension. A cursed, dreadful, malevolent thing was happening to those he loved. It isn't just an ordinary body, is it? I never saw one like it. It looks... unused. The sensational star discovery of the view from Poppy's head. And now an undreamed-of horror makes her life and love a vortex of fear. Jack! (laughs) Miles, where do they come from? I don't know. Suddenly, while you're asleep, they'll absorb your minds, your memories. I don't want any part of it. You're forgetting something, Miles. What's that? You have no choice. From city to city, an incredible hysterical panic spreads. As the unimaginable becomes real, the impossible becomes true. Stop and listen! Stop and listen to me! Listen! Listen! Listen to me! They're not human! I can, I can 
justify that. I could see that. You know, the pods, I consider them plants-ish. The Kevin McCarthy, the original, I love. I also really, really love the 1978 uh, remake uh, mm-hmm. with Don Sutherland. That's that's an excellent movie, too. But sticking with the classics, I think the uh, Kevin McCarthy 50s Invasion of the Body Snatchers is one of my favorites. I, You know, for Halloween one year, my wife and I, we thought we'd be clever. We made like really, really accurate replicas of the pods from the 50s movie. And we, we, they, we basically made them as pillows. So they were st- <laughs> stuffed fabric pillows. And so on Halloween, we dressed as ourselves and just walked around at this party carrying those pillows. So the first party we went to with that, nobody got it. Everybody just walked up. And said, What's that? P- uh, you two peas in a pod. What are you? And we're oh. like, oh, oh wow. What a disappointment. That didn't work. The next year, we tried it again at a different party. We walked in and everybody got it. It's just amazing how different the crowds were. And it was a hit the second year. So it, it worked out. Yeah, I think it's plant enough to count. <laughs> and like I said, no wrong answers. There you go. All right. Final card. Oh, and this one's hmm. knowing what you do uh, as a job and, and, and as a hobby. This one, I'm really interested to hear your answer. What is your favorite classic monster design? Okay, well, it's timely because there's a book about her coming out. I think it's already out. The Lady of the Black Lagoon. Listen, Patrick. I'm about halfway through it right now. Known for designing the creature from the Black Lagoon. But that's not my favorite design she did. I love the creature. But I actually love the mutant from uh, This Island Earth. uh, Maybe a little bit more. That is one of my favorite creatures. One of my favorite aliens. I've got figures and models. I don't know how many of that character. It's, It's one of my favorite designs. Even though in the movie... They are in the making of the movie. They ran out. Of, they ran out a little bit of money. You know, ended up putting pants on him instead of uh, finishing the legs. Uh, that aside, I think it's a fantastic design. It's the imagery of it. I mean, you you see like you know Gogo's paintings and everything like that. It's a, always looks awesome. So I think that's my favorite. Wow. Okay then. Well, but that's today. Yeah. You know. that's true that's the thing about this is you ask me these same questions tomorrow and i'm gonna have something totally different yeah no that's that's a good i'm about halfway through the book uh it's written by mallory o'mara who's a podcaster as well uh, and a film producer horror film producer and her take on the material is really interesting and eventually i'm gonna do a review of it here on the show excellent yeah so that was the classic five how do you feel man i survived i think i think i did okay there you go. <laughs> Listeners, let me know. Email me if you think Charles did a good job. <laughs> no, that was fun. That was fun. I, you know, even though I consider you a friend, it's not like you and I hang out all the time and, and that sort of thing. So I get to learn a little bit more about you through this as well, which has been pretty cool. This there Island Earth, I didn't realize it was such a uh, high on your list of, of favorite films. I even forgive the uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 version. Uh, wow. I think any movie can be made fun of, no matter how good it is. There's always something. But uh I like that movie a lot. I've watched it so many times without and with the Mystery Science Theater 3000 stuff. So it's uh, anyways, I don't know what else to say about it. I love that movie. (laughs) I have been pretty vocal in the past years ago about how much I hated MST3K after I loved MST3K. Now I'm at peace with MST3K, (laughs) but I was so offended when they did that film as their big theatrical release because come on, it's a classic two and a half years in the making. How do you do this to this movie? I'm, I'm over that now. You know, I do believe I say it all the time, but I do believe there's no right way to enjoy a movie. Yeah. And you know, if you enjoy it that way, fine. I did buy the Blu-ray because there's a making of this Island earth on it. So yeah, sure. There you go. There you go. It's a good film. And I wonder, are there any influences from Metropolis in that movie that you can think of off the top of your head? Oh, boy. 
Metropolis influenced so much. You know, I can't think specifically uh, this island Earth, what, what might be a good connection. But Metropolis, just it's it, it, when you go back to that movie, it is amazing. All of the connections, not just visually, you know, there's there's a lot of obvious visual connections to more recent films. But story wise, you know, there's a base story there that I think we've seen retold a million times since that movie. I mean, it's a classic story that's existed even before that movie. It's influences run deep. You know, normally I pause here and play a trailer, but it's a silent film, so there's not really <laughs> a, a trailer to play here. So I'm just going to dive right into this and I'm going to make a confession. I've not sat down to watch it from start to finish until yesterday. Oh, wow. And I was blown away. Oh, my. Um, now, I knew what Maria was. I mean, I had the uh, Silent Screams action figure of Maria. Yep. And, you know, I had that. And I knew Metropolis was important. Forey Ackerman loved the film. Uh, C-3PO was inspired by Maria. You know, I, I knew these things. But I hadn't actually sat down to watch it. And, Wow. It was amazing, man. It's hard to know where to start. You know, with this movie, you have to almost stand back and think about the time that it was made. It's really the equivalent in its time. It's the equivalent of any of these modern tentpole movies, you know, whether it's superhero movies or an avatar or something like that, where they, it has this massive budget and everything riding on this this spectacle at the time, the movie, I think it was made for $5 million. And that's the equivalent of like a $70 million movie now. Uh, $200 million actually is what I was seeing somewhere. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, that's a huge. big chunk of money. Huge for the time. And it absolutely is all on the screen. It's visuals, not just the special effects, but the sheer volume of extras and the scale of the sets and everything is, is really stunning. That's one of the things that I love about especially silent cinema but even the early universals and things like that is, you know, that these weren't just thrown together sets with wooden plywood or whatever. These were big structures that they yes. spent a lot of time and money on. Uh, you, you look at like the original Dracula, you know, you look at cabinet of Caligari, you look at Nosferatu, you look yes. at a hunchback, you know, the, the cathedral set. I mean, that's just amazing. It's so yeah. Metropolis over 3,700 extras used. Yeah. I mean, 37,000, excuse me. 37, yeah, I was going to say, thousand you're, 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 you're off by magnitude there. Yeah, yeah. 37,000 extras that they brought in for this thing. Yeah. And there's a room for them on the set, which was huge. Yeah. It's just the grandeur of it blows me away. I mentioned on Facebook that I don't watch enough silent movies, but the few that I have, the ones that I really respond to are the ones that have these big, giant set pieces. I, I love D.W. Griffith's uh, Intolerance because there's a lot of just magnificent sets on display there. And wow, Metropolis just blows it away. Yes. Have you seen, uh, speaking of spectacles, have you seen Ben-Hur, the uh, original? Yes. I mean, the, the chariot race in that, which, of course, was recreated shot for shot in the uh, Charlton Heston version, is amazing. You know, it's and of course, you know, you think how many horses must have died making that thing. But it was it was yeah. amazing the scale of it and the action. And it's like it rivals anything today. But um, yeah. I, I digress, you know, back to Metropolis. The, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, you know, silent movies. I, I agree with you. I mean, I don't watch enough of them. I've certainly seen my fair share of them. But I'm always amazed at how much story you actually get just watching somebody without the dialogue, even without the title cards. I mean, you can you really 
you know, especially when it's well made like Metropolis, you really can. It's an easy story to follow. Now, the tough part are the names. You know, I mean, this is a German movie and it's like I was debating with my wife, you know, watching that recently, how you pronounce some of these names. So we'll see how well we do here. But uh, well, <laughs> my last name is German, but I don't speak German. I, I, <laughs> I uh, Fritz Lang, I can pronounce. Yes. So we know that. And, and he. You know, if you don't know who Fritz Lang is, listeners, you've got some amazing movies to discover because, I mean, M, come on. Cloak and Dagger. Yeah. I'm not as up on uh, his filmography. I admire the ones that I've seen. Um, sure. And I certainly should check out more of them. But Metropolis is hard to – that's always at the top of the list. M is a very well-known one with uh, Peter Lorre. That movie is, that movie is a tough movie. Uh, if you have kids, beware. It's it's a challenging movie, but uh, it, it is. But it's it's so well done. Yes. Uh-huh. Know? But yeah, like you said, Cloak and Dagger. I'm familiar with that one. I don't think I've seen it. But a fling worked into the '60s. Yes. Yeah. Up until uh, kind of the mid '60s or so, or thereabouts. Yeah, he made the transition from silent to a sound from German cinema to American cinema. And yes. Part of it was because he fled Germany. He yes. was Jewish. If the internet's to be believed, apparently Hitler came to him and said, I love Metropolis. Do you want to be an Aryan? And he's like, nope, I'm out of here. Yeah. And went to Paris. So, yes. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, I, you know, unfortunately, I'm forgetting who wrote the story. It was his uh, wife. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Thea Von, and here's the first thing I'm going to get wrong. Thea Von Har- Harbo. She wrote a novel that was then adapted by her as the screenplay. Right. Now, I've not read the original novel, but I did check right before we started recording. It is available in English pretty inexpensively for Kindle. So I think I'm going to track it down and, and read it. Excellent. It's, it's just so cool. This story is, I know I was going off about the spectacle yeah. and how it looks and how grand it is. But the story itself is simple. Yes. Until you look at all of them. They get pretty complex the way they kind of interweave with each other. Right. I love that. There's a lot of layers to the story. You know, we, mm-hmm. we start off with Freder Freiderson. You know, we discover this uh, kind of rich kid. You know, he's the son of the guy that basically runs Metropolis, his father, John Freiderson. And, you know, we meet him at a track meet on the roof of one of the skyscrapers. The Suns Club, right? That's right. The Suns Club. And during one of these track meets after a race, he's got all of the girls chasing him around and he's very popular. But then a elevator door opens and a woman comes out with a whole class of children. Basically, she's there to show them the upper class. She announces them as these are your brothers and sisters. And it turns out this is Maria. I'm a little unclear if she's a a school teacher or just a caretaker of of the children. Yeah, it's, I, I, hmm, I don't know. But at any rate, Freighter, his eye catches her and he's smitten immediately. He wants to know who she is. You know, he's ignoring the woman that's chasing him right at that moment. He's immediately, his attention's drawn to this other woman that came up uh, the elevator. And then one of the servants uh, ushers them off. You know, you can't be up here and sends them back down the elevator. But Freighter follows along, you know, and goes down to the depths below to uh, investigate and find out more about what's going on down there. It immediately sets up this classism, this uh, the uh, conflict between the classes through what is going to become a love story. I mean, that's just one element here. You exactly. Know? And, it, and it's performed so well. And silent film acting is a little exaggerated. You know, they're transitioning from the stage and they're not quite sure how to do subtle. Um, but yeah. even though it's a little over the top, 
Yeah, we'll get into it's we'll really, get into subtle or lack thereof in a little bit here. <laughs> True, but it's easy to follow. Is yes. what I'm getting at, yes. and you probably don't need the title cards, like you said. Exactly. Even though you know it helps a little bit with like maybe giving us some names, you don't yeah. really need that to follow. Like I said, without the title cards, it beca- it's very clear the place that each character has. Yes. After Trader goes down to the the lower levels, the uh, underground portion of the city. And sees the the machines, the heart of the city, that all these workers are functioning like robots themselves and working to exhaustion. And he witnesses an accident and then also has this vision during the accident, which is a little surrealistic. It's another interesting element of this movie where the surrealism that comes in. But he goes back up to his father and explains, you know, you know, why do we treat the workers or asks, why do we treat the workers so poorly? But during this moment, you also are introduced to Yosefat and, and a little bit later, the thin man. I, I forget what his proper oh, name man. is. And, and these characters are very clear what their place is, even without dialogue. And, yes. you know, Yosefat is this, this assistant to Trader's father. And the thin man is basically like a henchman. Oh, and he's great. He's probably one of my favorite actors in this film. He cuts such a striking image. The actor's Fritz Rasp. Yes. And, oh, he's he's scary. Yes. He's creepy. He's got a unique look. And, oh, yeah. And it's interesting, too, is I was first exposed to this movie, uh, like most people, on videotape, on VHS, with the Giorgio Moroder version. Okay. And I, I don't remember being available a, a straight, you know, nice traditional release which the only release would have been available would be the paramount release the paramount edit which most is what the giorgio moroder version is really based on uh but the giorgio moroder version you know it's got all this tinting and some compositing effects we mentioned this uh this uh racetrack on the roof in the original version you have a normal kind of sky but in the Giorgio Moroder version, they've composited in like, you know, time lapse color photography of clouds and things like that. You know, it's kind of over the top and it's got the synth music and the pop songs of the time. But in that version, the thin man is almost non-existent. And he really, yeah, in the restored cut that, you know, we have now, uh, which I think is the same one that you watched. That was originally released on the Kino Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Thin Man's part was one of the big things that was restored. You see him here and there, but there's a lot more scenes with him in this version. And we'll talk a little bit about the restoration and, and what that means for this film. I'm sure we'll get to that. But I love the Thin Man, man. You know, I mean, there's a whole story right there just with that guy. Yeah, he's interesting. Very, very cool. Um, so we're introduced to the division in classes. You can tell exactly who's who and where they belong in the in the role of the city. And it's just this guy who sees Maria, starts following her around, gets infatuated, eventually falls in love, who wants to start bringing the classes together and starts questioning, why do we work these people to death? And literally to death. It's like on a daily basis, workers yes. die feeding the machine. It's, it's pretty... Uh, in your face about what they're saying here. <laughs> you know, yes. the, the masses are working for the machine, for the great of the city, but there are a few people on top that are benefiting from all. Just really interesting uh, yep. things being talked about here in this film. And we're just in the very beginning of it already. Right. You know, we're not even that far. It's great. Yeah, exactly. So eventually Freighter works his way back down to the depths of the city and trades places with a worker. And trades clothes and and basically is trading identities 
and taking the place of this worker. And the worker, uh, Yorgi, or his worker number, 11811, yeah. he takes the place of Freighter and Freighter takes the place of him. And one of the benefits of this, Freighter finds himself pulled into the, I guess you could almost call it the resistance of the underground of the workers. And this is where he discovers that Maria is not just the, the school teacher. Like we saw before, she's almost the prophet or the priestess of this resistance the leader of this resistance, or at least the preacher in some way. Um, Mm -hmm. And she's giving these sermons and giving them hope, these workers hope that, that they will find a way and unite. And it's not even about rebellion. It's about uniting with the class above. Yeah. I mean, it does eventually turn violent towards the end, but this isn't about let's overthrow everything. This is just, we're all people. Let's just all, let's, let's have some rights here. Let's not keep dying for the machine. You know, it's really about that, but it does escalate. Of course, because you know, you wouldn't have a story otherwise. However, the reasons it escalates is, is where we get into the, some of the really cool stuff for this movie. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You're talking about Rotwang. Oh my gosh. Rotwang. (laughs) You know, watching this movie again, and I should mention, by the way, I watched three versions of this movie <laughs> right oh, before wow. this. I watched the Giorgio Moroder one again and, and the restoration. But I also watched this other one that you could find on YouTube that is called uh, Metropolis Remixed, where somebody actually went in and did a completely original soundtrack. It's a very atmospheric soundtrack. But then they they took out all of the title cards and went in and recorded an entire dialogue track. And sound effects and did a uh, audio track more like a traditional movie. It's interesting. I don't know if it's completely successful in its execution, but it's interesting. Huh. At, at any rate, we find, yeah, Rotwing. But we find this connection that Rotwing has to Freighter's father in that Rotwing was a, infatuated with the same woman that Freighter's father ended up marrying and is Freighter's mother. And hell. Uh, which is an interesting name. I've heard the name Hella, Helen, but uh, just Hell. H-E-L. Reference to her was trimmed back, apparently, in the American release because of the confusion of the name that they thought yeah. people would have. We find out that he was infatuated with her. And Freighter's father comes to Rotwing and finds this recreation of Hell that Rotwing has built. And it's the famous robot that everybody is familiar with from the posters and everything of this movie. It's one of the biggest icons of science fiction is this, what is known as the Maria robot or Futura, or in this case, it actually is meant to be a recreation of hell. And where do we go from here? It's the (laughs) (laughs) so hard freighters dad. He sees this. He's shocked by this idol that he's created to hell But at the same time, he decides to make a deal with Rotwing. (laughs) And the deal is he's discovered before he visits Rotwing that there's something going on uh, with the workers. And it turns out that Rotwing has direct access to this gathering, this this starting of this resistance that Maria is leading. And so they both sneak down into these caverns and oversee one of these meetings that they're having. And this is where John Frederson says to Rotwing, use your robot, replace this Maria with your robot. (laughs) 
this is where the story really starts to get insane. Yeah. Uh, the, the robot, I knew it was iconic, but actually seeing it in the context of the film, I'm going to say this phrase a lot during this recording. I probably already have blown away. I was just blown away. And to know that the actress who played Maria, uh, Brigitte or Brigitte Helm Mm -hmm. was actually in the robot suit as well. Yes. I mean, that's built around her. I don't know why. I mean, (laughs) it is. And it's impressive. That suit is, uh, is so amazing. The, the art deco design is obviously the main thing I like about it. The art deco and design in general, I'm a big fan of it's, these clean lines and it's just this perfect sculpture. The construction of the suit was fascinating because apparently they made a plaster mold of Helm and the art director had come across this material. They kept calling it uh, in all the research that I've ever been able to do on this suit. Cause of course I looked it up. Oh, you sure. Know, like, sure. You know, every, I've looked up every, <laughs> every time. I mean, it seems like every few months I go, is there anything new about this? Can I find more information? <laughs> you know, this, this suit doesn't exist in re, you know, anymore. And, yeah. um, but the material was this plastic wood that they, they, it was called plastic wood. It's like a wood putty. I mean, it's an equivalent to like this air, an air dry wood putty. It's like, it's a wood filler with some sort of resin, air cure resin bonder. Okay. And they basically sculpted the suit around her plaster cast, uh, her body cast, in pieces and hand finished it just like you would, you know, carving wood, basically. Huh. And then painted it with uh, a metalized uh, lacquer. It's amazing. It looks like metal. It moves like it would be metal. I mean, it kind of moves stiff because it probably was really heavy. Right. And uh, I can't imagine this petite girl living in this suit for very long. <laughs> Fortunately, she really only has a few scenes in the suit where she's moving around. And when I was watching the movie this time around, uh, finally, you know, in, in one go, I was kind of surprised by how little Maria actually appears in the film. Uh, the right. Robot, that is. Yes. I, I don't know why, but I had built it up in my head that she is a, an omnipresent thing. And while that character is... The robot design, you don't see for very long. And right. I, I think that might work to its benefit as well. Yes. But it, it looks phenomenal. And this is early in the history of filmmaking and special effects. So, you know, they weren't thinking about breathability and, uh, you know, <laughs> making sure the whole thing was safe and all that. I mean, good for her for doing it. You know? Yes. <laughs> wow. Oh, one little side note. There's a group, uh, I think they're Canadian. You can find them online and it was the the Metropolis Robot Maria Project. I mean, you type that into Google, you'll be able to find it. They have a Facebook page and everything. They've done the most accurate uh, recreation of that suit that I've seen anybody do. And it's an amazing sculpture. Uh, they made a fully functional suit that they have a performer that wears, and they've taken it to conventions and things like that. Oh, wow. But, uh, but it's a stunning replica. And I haven't seen anybody do one as good as this one. So I, I recommend checking it out. I mean, I like my Silent Screamers action figure, but yeah, having something life-size would be a lot of fun. <laughs> I don't know where I'd put it, but you know. I think if you talk to these guys, you can get one. <laughs> yeah, probably not for the budget I have. Yeah, um, <laughs> but it's it's pretty phenomenal, and you can see the influence, I suppose, on C three PO as well as a handful of other film robots and artificial life creations. I mean, Frankenstein much here? Come on, right? Exactly. And the mad scientist, I you know, I was going to oh, mention yeah. mention earlier. I think he's got to be the prototype for every mad scientist you've ever seen in any movie. Oh, he's got to be. His hair, his 
you know, lab coat, all of the equipment in his lab. I mean, it predates Frankenstein by uh, several years. And it's mm-hmm. it's the thing that I think everybody copies every time they do a parody of a mad scientist. It's really this guy, this one incarnation of a mad scientist that everybody's copying. Even right down to the manic uh, look in his eyes and the dark exactly. makeup under the eyes and everything. Uh, and one thing here, he has a metal right hand. Which yes. we don't actually see the metal. He's wearing a glove. But, I mean, this is – you could get super, uh, you know, um, what am I looking for here? You could interpret this in a number of different ways. Uh, you know, he is it the right hand of God that he fed to the machine? Is You know, that did he sacrifice his right hand? It's interesting. And a lot of the things that I looked up online were things – you can see this in Star Wars with Luke losing his hand and Darth Vader yeah. losing his hand. And maybe you can. I don't know. But I think more than anything, Rotwang – is the mad scientist. I have a question in the classic five. Who's your favorite mad scientist? If anybody asks me that it's this guy now, I love my Peter Cushing, Dr. Frankenstein. (laughs) Don't get me wrong, but it's this guy. Yeah. And the performance is perfect. Oh man. Rudolph Klein. Man, <laughs> I'm sure there's a commentary track that pronounces all these names correctly. Yes. Uh, there's a commentary track on my Blu-ray that I haven't watched yet, but you know I'm going to. I haven't listened to mine yet either. But he's fantastic. He's so good. Yes. And and he's the villain. I mean, if there's a villain here, it's got to be this guy, right? Yes, because oh, yeah. this, is, this is where it gets interesting. Like, it hasn't been interesting already. Right. He takes this mission that uh, John Frederson has given him of turning the hell robot into a likeness of Maria, the, the worker's savior. And he basically says, kidnap Maria, turn the robot into Maria, and send the robot back out to take her place. And <laughs> and in doing this, what Rotwing does is he basically creates this robot that is going to cause chaos in the uh, the underground. And this is where the violence and the uprising that you mentioned before come from, mm-hmm. is this crazy robot that is an interesting part because you have Helm playing the sweet Maria and then all of a sudden shifting, and she's also playing the evil Maria, the false yeah. Maria, in a completely manic, crazy way. Oh, with man. One, one eye that's <laughs> constantly closing, and it's, and she does this insane dance in front of a lot of the upper class men and to drive them insane. It's like she's kind of causing chaos on both ends, not just down below with the workers, but up above. Right. She, she becomes this agent of chaos and. And and the performances are so solid with her. She's able to pull off this dual role so convincingly, yes. uh, so much so that towards the end of the movie, when the characters start getting confused about who's who, I was getting confused about who's <laughs> who because she was acting it so well. There is uh, a religious thing happening now, too, in this film with you've got the seven deadly sins and the embodiment of death playing a bone flute. It's just... <laughs> It's yes. So, it just gets oh, a little wacky. Oh yes, when when Freighter walks in and sees the was it seven deadly sins and there are these statues that come to life. This is part of the surrealism that I was talking yeah, about yeah. earlier. It's like I, I still don't understand what that really was all about, all of this imagery coming to life uh, in front of him. One of the side effects of this uprising that she brings with the workers, the false Maria, is she basically drives them to break their equipment, break the machinery that is running the city. And with this, it causes a flood. It causes the the reservoirs to overflow and start to flood the city underground. And 
unfortunately, all of the families, all of the children of these workers are in this underground. And so we have Freighter and the real Maria now trying to save the children from this catastrophe. It's pretty intense, the uh, the flooding sequence of the underground city and all these kids, this, this throng of what we're supposed to think are lower-class children and families. They're, they're dirty, they don't all have shoes, and they're all trying desperately to get away from their world, which is being flooded from above by the working class. And it's just, oh, <laughs> the yeah. sequence is tense, it's stressful, uh, in a good way. The performances sell it. And half the time I was afraid that uh, Frieder is going to fall. Because yes. he's, he's, he's uh, you know, climbing all over these, uh, you know, stairways and ladders and, and access spaces, just trying to get out and break through a set of bars so yes. that people can escape. I felt real danger here. And there might have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say there very well could have been. People could have gotten hurt here. I, I don't think there are any reports of anybody actually dying while producing the film, but I would not be surprised if somebody got hurt somewhere along the way. That flood sequence is quite amazing because it actually jumps back and forth between some miniatures. I mean, the miniatures in this movie are stunning. Oh, yeah. There's miniatures of the reservoirs breaking, but then it's full-size sets that they are flooding with hordes of children in the middle of it, too. You know, all of this water's coming in, and uh, it's quite amazing. We didn't talk about the miniatures of this movie. I mean, the the cityscapes, you know, I mean, you talk about influences. Blade Runner, I mean, is clearly influenced by specific shots of this movie. Oh, certainly. One thing that I found out more recently that I was quite surprised by in some of these wider shots of the city where you see these highways in the sky uh, between the buildings and you see all the little cars moving along these freeways. All of those little cars were moved with stop motion. One car at a time, a little bit at a time, and there's hundreds of cars here. It's it's really stunning. When I learned that, my jaw dropped because, yes. I mean, it could have just been models on strings. You know, pull up. No, they went all out. Stop motion in yes. a 1927 German film. Yeah, it's amazing. amazing. Yep. <laughs> oh, there you go. I know. It's hard to say anything else. It's yeah. It's, and, and you see it influencing Blade Runner. I see it influencing a lot of things in Star Wars. I see it influencing so much. Um, what's the one movie that I'm trying to think of? There's a bunch of other dark science fiction movies that is, it's influenced, I guess. I'll just say that. Uh, just the aesthetic of how the world is built, the models, the cityscape. I was a big fan of the model work in this. It looked pretty good. And it's interesting because you look at uh, a modern movie like Blade Runner 2049, for example. When the they were promoting the movie, Weta did effects on it. And one of the things that they were in charge of is they built all of these massive city models, uh, buildings miniatures that are of course they call bigatures or whatever but they're just giant structures of these buildings to fly their motion control cameras through and if you look at the behind the scenes photography uh, photos of the original metropolis it's all like the same scale of stuff you know these buildings are just as big in in the metropolis effects as you know they were building for this uh, modern movie and it was it's all done effectively the same way you know it's, yeah Little a little enhancement here and there with the old computer, but at the heart, it's it's the same stuff. It's pretty phenomenal, and to think about the amount of time spent to create this this world that Metropolis takes place in, it blows me away. There, there we go. I'm blown away again <laughs> um, because it's just 
so vast and so different. And it's not just model work. I mean, they did a lot of art and, and matte painting and, yes. and some trick photography, kind of. They didn't use an optical printer. I don't think they existed no. at that point. No, it was all in camera stuff. Sometimes with mirrors, with the yes. silver scratched away. The amount of care in detail, especially in a set that you're just going to flood. Exactly. They made it look good. And that flooding sequence is pretty scary. Like I said earlier, man, it's intense. And it's an amazing sequence, not just for the spectacle of the effects, but as part of the story, you know, this is where the heroism of Maria and, and Freighter come to pass. This is, this is their moment. You know, they save all of these children. They get them to the safety of the upper levels. But unfortunately, as they get the children to safety, Maria is spotted by the horde of workers that are now hunting down Maria, the one that they blame for, causing this catastrophe to begin with because she was the one to rile them up and get them to go break the machines. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, they come across the real Maria and they start chasing down the real Maria as a witch. You know, they keep yelling, witch, witch. (laughs) Right, yeah. And fortunately for Maria, she basically ends up getting out of view and then the false Maria basically ends up coming out at the right time, you know, lucky her, and they find the the false Maria and they grab the false Maria and they put her on a, a pyre to burn her and, and they tie her up. And that's also that's one of the last images you get of the Metropolis robot suit. The, the Maria Futura costume is when she's tied up and she's getting burned. I guess we're spoiling. I guess is it bad to spoil a 90 year old movie? Anyways, it's fine. It's I'm fine. Ki- I'm, I, I'm kidding mostly. But when she's burning, that she loses the facade of Maria, and mm-hmm. you see her real form of the uh, the Futura robot. And all the all the workers are kind of are, are astounded by what they're seeing. They're um, very confused. <laughs> be- before it transitions to the robot suit as well, Helm as an actress is just maniacal. Oh, yes. Yes, her her face, what she does with her face in this film, throughout the entire thing, really. But towards the end, when she's getting burned. Yes, it's amazing. Which, which indeed. (laughs) Let's see how many times I can say amazing. (laughs) I'm blown away. You're amazing. It's fine. (laughs) It's, yeah. She's wonderful in it. Yeah. And, you know, going back a little bit, when she's seducing those men in with that dance, that's quite, I was actually quite surprised how risque that is for the time period i i think this it's movies like this that actually probably brought about the code to begin with potentially she's dressed rather uh skimpily on top and uh the dances that she's doing and the obvious feelings and emotions that she's eliciting from the men i mean they're looking at her with pure lust hunger I and mean, you you know what they want uh, yeah in almost a comical way i mean yeah. they are they are almost as bad as the tex avery cartoon wolf with the tongue on the floor the eyes pop, popping out thinking about the hoga. Yeah, yeah i was just that, thinking about that they're literally at that level uh eyeing her well don't a couple of them come to blows with each other over getting your yes. attention yes so i mean and she's driving them all to to fight amongst themselves there's this religious overtone this this kind of almost a you know, it's, it's the revelation. It's the apocalypse. We've got death walking around. We've got her bringing about the end and the flood, uh, the Tower of Babel. I mean, it's there's yes. all these different religious iconography things happening here, too, to give it another layer. Yeah, we didn't even talk about her story of Babel. It's an insane film. I'm so disappointed that I waited so long to sit down and watch it from start to finish. Exactly. Uh, yes. And for as insane as it is, it's totally a coherent movie. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you follow everything that's going on. It's not confusing at all. It's simple on a lot of levels, but it's kind of complex, the amount of stuff that's going on in there. It can get lost very easily. You know, you can lose your way, you know, making these kinds of movies. And I think the fact that Fritz Lang was man- managed to hold all of this together and and keep it interesting all the way to the end. And it's amazing that this is also uh, this restored edition. It's like a two-hour cut. It's a lot or more than two hours. Two, two and a half hours is the version I watched. And for the longest time, all anybody saw was this 90-minute version. It's amazing that, again, amazing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> how, how much this extra material really does add to the story, and it doesn't really slow down the movie. No, uh, all the stuff that was added, uh, the stuff with Fritz Raspis, the Thin Man character, snooping around, all of this stuff here, uh, it doesn't make the film feel bloated. It feels like it all belongs. In fact, I was watching it, and you can tell in the restoration when, oh, hey, here's a scene that they had to restore from that Argentinian yeah. cut. Oh, that cut from came from the New Zealand find. Yeah. You know, you can tell. And I'm trying to tell myself... How would this movie play with those cuts? Would I still enjoy it as much? Fortunately, the set that I have is a three-disc set, and it's got a ton of different cuts on it. So <laughs> uh, I can go back and watch it, including the one cut that you were talking about uh, yeah. with the with the soundtrack, the new soundtrack and all yeah, that. Yeah, Giorgio Moroder. Yeah, I mean, he was, a, he was a music producer and a musician and is. He's still around. I think his version, by the way, has merit. I think it's an interesting... Well, I'm looking forward to watching it. You know, I know people that are, you know, especially as soon as this restored cut came out, there were people that kind of bashed the Marauder version. I was like, I don't know if I feel that way about it. I really still enjoy the Marauder version. It's got an interesting take on this idea. And this is from 1984, whenever I think, when this came out. This idea of remixing this old thing into something new, which, of course, you know, pop culture as it is now, is nothing but remixing the old things into something new. I think it was an interesting approach that he had. And uh, there was some of the music's good. So I think yeah. it's worth checking out. I mean, there's this this thought, and I forget the name of the uh, YouTube producer who put it together, but he did a series of videos a few years ago, several years ago, called Everything is a Remix. And, uh-huh. <laughs> and yeah, basically, he, he, tra- he tracks music and film and then inventions that everything kind of comes from something else and all these different influences come together create something new but is it really new because it took all these other pieces to make it and it's a really interesting look at how things work and of course how quentin tarantino makes movies but (laughs) and he spends an entire episode on that but uh, it's really interesting and to me especially as a creative as a creator uh, somebody who thought he was going to be a filmmaker when he grew up, you know, looking at all these images, what would I do if I had the ability to go in and, and recut some of this stuff? And I know Nosferatu has had a score by James Bernard and even, you know, a non-silent film. Philip Glass did a version of Dracula, you know, yeah. Universal Dracula, which I didn't think was as successful as others. But, you know, I'm looking forward to checking it out, checking this Semarotor version. I think it sounds neat. Before we uh, forget the visuals on this movie the cinematography of this movie oh wow oh my gosh right it's got such a big monster kid connection that we can't overlook that the cinematographer on this is the same cinematographer as dracula and as murders in the room morgue uh carl frund and he went on to direct the mummy and his influence on this obviously can't be overlooked his movies after this are are amazing as well yeah carl freund is uh, one of these guys that i don't think 
gets enough attention from a lot of Universal Monster fans. I mean, I know he did The Mummy, but his influence on all of this, uh, the, the classic Universal cycle, is is felt so yeah. strongly. And that he came from Metropolis, I, I totally get it. I totally yeah. believe it. And as a director, he directed Mad Love, which is a fantastic movie. If nobody's seen it, you got to check out Mad Love with Peter Lorre. It's just such a bizarre story, but really a lot of fun. Mad Love. I'm trying to remember if I've seen it. Colin Clive's in that, isn't he? Uh, I believe he is, yes. Okay. Oh, it's the hand. Okay, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. complicated to explain that story. I almost just want to let people uncover it. <laughs> right on. Right on. Well, you know, I haven't talked about it on the show yet. So. Oh, boy. Did we just uh-huh. we just come up with a new episode, Derek? But potentially, uh, this time we won't wait. Like, you're going to have to make it happen. Right. We won't actually keep changing the schedule. But yeah, no, Freund is good. Freund is real good. And just the cinematography and just the way the shadow is done and a lot of the moving camera elements uh, or, or shots, I was really impressed here because, you know, again, it's the early stages of cinema. Are they moving cameras around all that much? Well, they're trying. Are they doing cross-cutting? Well, they're trying. This one pulls it off so well. There are so many incredible shots in this, sometimes static, sometimes the camera's mounted on something and it's moving back and forth. Uh, A lot of POV shots, a lot of overhead, just the variety of camera shots here were phenomenal. It's, again, you know, we keep going back to it. Visually, this is a landmark movie in cinema, period. I mean, it's it's got the influences that we've talked about. You can take images, you can take still frames from this movie and make fine art prints on your wall. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, to hang on your wall. I mean, there's so many images of this movie that are just, as a static image, are beautiful. Oh, I agree with you. Yeah, 100% there. I would love to have some of this imagery. And it doesn't even have to have Maria in it. It could be anything. I mean, something with right. Rotwang or, or the Tower of Babylon. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's gorgeous as a painting. Oh, yes, it is. I can totally is. see why Forey Ackerman, uh, the famous Monsters of Filmland editor, cited this as his favorite film. Man, like I said, I wish I had experienced this fully much sooner. I got a lot of catching up to do, man, because there's a lot I want to know about this movie. You know, I think I'll be catching up until the end because there are so many movies like this that I still haven't watched. For as many movies as I've watched, you know, there's always new discoveries. Like, you know, for you, Metropolis, you know, it's going to be something else next week. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, that's one of my favorite things about doing this show, too, is all these movies that I know I should have watched by now as a monster kid or whatever, uh, that I know what the stories are. I've seen clips or trailers, but I've never actually watched. Yeah, that's one of the things that I love about doing the show. And people who are passionate about these things, like you with Metropolis or like... Like when I did the Planet of the Apes films with Scott Morris, you know, discovering these <laughs> movies. And I brought that up on purpose because I know you love that series, too. <laughs> I love Planet of the Apes. Yeah, I know. I listened to all of those episodes and was disappointed that I didn't get to participate because I, ah. I have a lot to say about Planet of the Apes. I love that series so much. You know, there's nothing saying I can't revisit the topic at some point. Maybe like a Planet of the Apes roundtable or something. To make the point clear, I am such a fan of Planet of the Apes that I named my son Zayas. <laughs> I told Scott that too. When you told me that, I told that to Scott and he's like, wow, that's awesome. (laughs) I don't know if that's cruelty or uh, or love. I don't know. It's just, uh, fortunately nobody really, uh, that's the sad thing is, is in the general public outside of monster kid fandom, you tell somebody that his name is Zayas. And I have a lot of people think it's just a biblical name. They think it's actually kind of normal, which is great. So it doesn't, it's not going to stand out, but (laughs) down deep. You know, it's all about, it's all about an ape. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's, that's, um, again, parenting win, you know, <laughs> yeah. got a kid named Zayas. You got a girl watching all the universal monster movies with you. I, you know, yep. you're doing, you're doing the work, man. That's awesome. 
I also wanted to mention another thing when we're talking about Fritz Lang. There is an interview. I'll send you a link to that. You can maybe put in your show notes. It's it's fascinating. As Fritz Lang did an interview in the early 70s. I want to say it was about 1974. Okay. Where he did an interview with William Friedkin. William oh. Friedkin, uh, the director of The Exorcist, actually sat down and did an interview with Fritz Lang. And it's fascinating. And so I highly recommend checking that out. If you don't mind sending me the link, I'll check it out. I'd, I'd love to Absolutely. hear what he has to say. One other thing about the film that I wanted to touch on just briefly, I really enjoyed and responded well to the friendship between Freder and uh, Josephat. Yes. That, that friendship, that relationship as it develops and uh, the way uh, Freder basically saves his life, keeps him from committing suicide, which again, yes. pretty heavy subject, you know. Uh, he gets fired from his job and, well, what am I going to do now? You know, yeah. so, uh, and, and the way that relationship progresses through the film as well, they, they basically become brothers. I mean, I love it. Exactly. He's a very important part. And because he also is somebody that helps out Yorgi, the worker that Freighter trades places with. Yosefat's the one that actually helps him in Freighter's place. And so he's, he's very important in that respect. Yeah. Uh, and the performances really sell it for me. And you know what? I'm going to stop trying to pronounce the names. Listeners, look it up. <laughs> Seriously, go to Wikipedia or the IMDb. Uh, you're going to see a list of phenomenal actors and actresses who all contributed to this movie. I don't think there's a weak actor or actress in this film. Uh, everybody does what they're supposed to do and then some. Also, the faces. You know, that's the other thing about silent movies that you're not distracted maybe by anything else like the dialogue or the sound effects or something else. You're staring at their faces. And they're speaking this li- these lines that you can't hear. But the casting in this movie is great, not just for their performances, but their look. Everybody has such a great look in this movie. If John Frederson's face reminds me so much of Peter Cushing. Ooh. And okay. I could, I could see that. I could see that. Who is a, has a face that I love, right? Yeah. You know? The one guy that I liked and <laughs> just loved watching his expressions, Grot. The, the guardian of the heart machine, uh, Heinrich George, and the lines that he gets to say, you know, you fools, why did you attack the machines? You know, that's going to destroy everything. Yes. You know, and, and I love that too. And in his interactions with Freiderson as well, towards the beginning of the film. And he's quite a character. He, he's an interesting character because at the beginning of the movie, you, you see him, he's sort of the direct line of communication between the heart machine, the workers, and John Frederson. I mean, he's up there communicating with John Frederson. And he's the one that actually, at the beginning, shows John Frederson these mysterious maps that multiple workers have been found carrying around. These maps are what, in fact, lead the workers to this underground resistance that Maria is leading. This is where John Frederson actually discovers that there's something going on is from this particular worker. This movie has so much, and I'm sure there's lots that we have not touched on or that we haven't well okay that i haven't been able to pick up yeah. on because i've only watched the one time uh there are other things that other listeners have seen and and extrapolated from here there is uh some communism i don't know if you call it propaganda or not in here but there's a little bit of that yeah there's the uniting of the head and the heart with that and just yes. trying to bring everything together and, and are we all equal yeah. or are we not there's a lot to to digest here i know i'm gonna watch this again I've been, like I said on Facebook, I, I haven't watched enough silent films, and a lot of my friends have given me a lot of suggestions of things I need to see. I think this was a good one to kind of start my education of silent cinema. I think most of them are a little shorter from here on. This is a long, <laughs> this is a long movie. Not 
that it feels it. Yeah, that's true. Although Josh Kennedy has recommended a five and a half hour movie to me. So uh, <laughs> called Napoleon that uh, I'm eager to see. Oh, so, yes. you know, you know, when I have a day. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't have that kind of time. <laughs> People complaining about the next Avengers movie being over three hours long. Come on. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. <laughs> Yeah, I have to watch. I'll have to watch these things in segments. Right. Uh, <laughs> something else that I love about the film is kind of like a. It wasn't really intentional. H.G. Wells hated it. H.G. Wells hated the movie. He thought it was silly. Wasn't really a big fan. So it's like you know what? I'm going to write a story about the future, and that story was Things to Come, which was turned into a film in 1936. And I haven't talked about that here on the show either. But I have the Criterion. Oh, it's great. Oh, my gosh. Yes. The Criterion edition, I have watched it, is really great. Mm -hmm. Transfer the movie. It's a beautiful movie. But it's also an amazing story. Hey, amazing. Hey, this there is you my, go. Hey, I was blown away amazing by it. Word, <laughs> it's my word for the day. And I've enjoyed that movie several times. The production design on that movie, it's interesting that H.G. Wells didn't like Metropolis uh, because there's a lot of similarities. Sure. You know, just in design now and granted he didn't have any direct design influence on the movie i think things to come is influenced by metropolis without a doubt and not in the negative way no that you're mentioning i, I think from now on it's going to be impossible for me to see a movie that takes place in the so-called future and not see something from metropolis in it and maybe yes. i'll be you know reaching but this film is certainly one of the landmark science fiction films of all time, uh, silent film, you know, cinema, period. It's influenced so much. And I keep saying science fiction, but you can see elements of Dr. Strangelove in this. I mean, yes. you can see uh, just so much. Uh, Dark City, that was the one movie I was trying to think of a while yes, back. Yes, Dark City. Oh, wow, yeah. It's another great movie. see a lot of that in there, too. Have you seen the Japanese anime called metropolis you know i just realized i just discovered that information about that online before we started recording i, I was going to ask you if you were aware of it i've seen the movie it's a really interesting movie i i enjoyed it it's definitely a big deviation from the original silent movie but its lineage comes from it and the title definitely comes from it because it's based on a uh i want to say mid 40s manga okay that the manga itself it was inspired by the film metropolis and so then the anime that was done, I want was like 15 years ago. I forget how long ago it was done is based on that manga. You can see the inspiration, but there's enough differences. It's, it's hard to call it a remake or anything like that, but it's, it's worth checking out. Right on. I haven't watched a lot of anime over the years. Yeah. You know, when, when anime first started coming over to the U S it was a lot of really badly dubbed by very <laughs> high pitched yes. people who sounded like children. Yes. Um, I was working at a blockbuster video at the time and it got put into the in-store monitors all the time and it, it kind of drove me nuts. So I kind of stayed away from it for a long time, but I keep thinking, you know, it's hand-drawn animation. Where else are you going to get that these days? I really need to check this stuff out. And if they did a version of Metropolis that's halfway decent, I'll check it out. Yeah, anime. Anime is, is a whole nother topic. You know, there's... Oh, yeah. It's just like all of these other films that we talk about on MKR. It's There's a wide variety <laughs> to choose oh, from. I bet. And, and, I bet. and uh, there's certainly ones that rise to the top and others that are uh, uh, maybe a little more forgettable. So I got a question for you. Yes. Why haven't you built a Maria? <laughs> it's funny you ask. Uh-oh. <laughs> it has been discussed in this house several times about building a Maria. So it may happen. Okay. I, you know, I should mention that my wife is probably just as big a fan of this movie, if not bigger than I am. 
And when I met her, she already had a collection of Maria stuff, posters and vinyl model kits and things like that. So she's a big fan and she's, she herself has talked about building a Maria. So it may happen. Wow. Well, I want to see pictures, man. And, and, and I ask it in just for the listeners, uh, Charles uh, builds props and, and does a lot of, um, I don't know. What would you just, how would you describe your job if you don't mind? <laughs> well, I, well, briefly, I'm an art director at a theatrical design company and we do props and puppets and set pieces and costumes for theater, uh, Broadway to Olympic opening ceremonies to theme parks. So it's kind of all across the board, live entertainment as a whole, you know, we don't, oh, there you go. Yeah, we don't do a lot of film and TV, although we've done occasional things here. But you've done something, you've appeared in a YouTube video in something you built. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was going to mention yeah. it. Uh, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Chris Wallace, who's an amazing visual effects artist, did a like mock trailer yes. uh, for what was it called? The Apes of Frankenstein? Apes of Frankenstein. Yeah. So, so Chris and I are both big fans of, and, and I know we've talked about this before, big fans of ape suit in film. And the best way to describe it is, I mean, you look at film. And you think about all of the times you've seen a gorilla. The reason that it's a man in a suit is you can't train a gorilla. From the beginning of time, it's been a man in a suit. And in the early days, it's the same, like, three guys. That's right. And, Charlie and Gamora, man. He's the man. You see these suits, these same suits used over and over again in film through the ages. And I'm a fan of that. I've always been kind of a fan of apes in movies. I don't know why. I don't know if it's a monster kid thing or what. There's a whole Facebook group of us that are a fans of these apes. And Chris has built many of them over the years. And, mm -hmm. and I'm working on my suit right now. So when I was in his film, I played a couple parts, but one of them was indeed an ape uh, with the head of my ape that I'm building. And I borrowed one of his suits. And so I was kind of a hybrid. Uh, I was like a Sasquatch ape. <laughs> Which makes sense. I mean, it's the apes of Frankenstein. That's so, yeah. right. So we're, so we're mutant apes. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's a lot of fun. This whole ape suit thing. That's a whole nother topic for a future episode is apes in film. I would love to do I've it. I've got a whole list of movies that I recommend there. There's actually a card in the Classic Five asking, and I'm surprised it didn't come up. What's your favorite man in gorilla suit movie? You know, and there it's so hard to pick. I don't know nearly as much about it as you do, but when I was when I first discovered Charlie Gamora, I was just man, that man. Everything he did is insane. Right, and you got to remember, he's not just an ape guy. I mean, no. he, he also. I mean, one of my other favorite aliens of all time is. The Martian from War of the Worlds, and that was a Charlie Gamora creation as well. Yep. Mm -hmm. So it's more than just the apes. You know, it's these these guys like Gamora that are builders. You know, I mean, I think that's also what I gravitate towards. Just, I mean, it's my job. I love building things. I love making things, and I'm always interested in and I research and and follow all of these people that were makers of things. You know, and they they weren't big names. You know, I mean, Charlie Gamora wasn't a big household name at all, but. He has become kind of a name. I mean, there's a documentary about him, and uh, just as an example, and, and like Millicent Patrick that we were talking about earlier. I mean, people finally find out about these people, and, and these stories are fascinating, and people are fascinated by them, and I, I love supporting that. We're creatives, so of course they speak to us on that level too. But just imagining the kind of work and, and the kind of environment they had to work in to create these things. They didn't have computers. They didn't have all this stuff that you have access to now. When Charlie Gamora made his ape suit, I mean, it was 
yeah. <laughs> what he had to do to make that work and make it work so well. Exactly. And that was one of the other things, you know, enjoying this group. I won't deviate too much on this. It's a little off topic of Metropolis, but ah, well, you know, I went there <laughs> uh, when, you know, I started to make my ape suit and specifically was making the head for this particular ape suit. I went about it in a very old school way. I mean, it was it was very much just, you know, old school latex and cotton and paper towels built up on a sculpture. And it's all handmade and built, not sculpted and molded and cast in silicone or anything like that. It's it's a lot of old school materials. And it's kind of relaxing for me because I spend so much of my day in a front of a computer because here in 2019, to do the same work, I have to do it digitally. Um, just because of, I mean, it's just where the industry is and because of schedules and budgets and time and all these things have to happen concurrently. You know, you have to use digital tools to be able to do a lot of this. You know, when I get home, I get really old school. I break out the rubber and punch hair and you know, all that stuff. <laughs> right on. Uh, the name of the Facebook group is Ape Suit Cinema. Uh, it is listed as a public group, but I think you still have to be approved to get and yeah. there are some rules you have to follow, you know, religion <laughs> and all that other stuff. Uh, but yeah, it's it's on Facebook. Go check it out. I'm, I'm part of the group as well. And I, I followed you while you were making your, your yeah. ape head. That was pretty cool. Thank you. And, and I'll also make sure there's a link to that as well as this Metropolis robot group. I think I found it online. Uh, so I'll make sure there's a link there as well. Yeah. I think we could probably go on for another couple of hours <laughs> about Metropolis. I don't have that kind of time, yes. unfortunately, yeah. but I am going to go back and I am going to watch the uh, the other cut. I don't know what else is on that set. It's a three-disc set, and it is a restoration. My version comes from uh, Eureka, yeah. which is over in the UK. It's uh, Region B, so I had to use my uh, multi-region player. It's part of the Masters of Cinema collection, and it's very nice. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we won't drag this out too much but you know the copyright on this movie has kind of been it's disputed let's put it that way it's Um, gone back and forth a couple of times yeah and you can in fact find versions of it on youtube i'll throw that out there Um, but i have the kino disc the blu-ray and i highly recommend that one too uh which you should be able to find for anyone that can't get a blu-ray a region b blu-ray to play uh the kino disc is a really good disc so it may very well be the same restoration as I, well it should be, on yeah. both i think it's it's yeah. the same with the uh the argentinian footage which is exactly. all scratchy the kino disc also has the documentary that talks about the restoration so that you're just see i've watched that i saw yeah. that on tcm uh, yeah. like a year and a half ago so <laughs> yeah so yeah I, I knew what metropolis was i just hadn't sat down to watch it all the version that we have now is what they're saying about 95 percent complete there, there yeah. might be a few extra scenes here and there and as you're watching it there is uh pretty much right smack dab in the middle, a couple of title cards that tell you what happens because we don't actually get to see it, but it's not enough to break the movie. I mean, come on, this, this version is so, I'm going to say near perfect. By the way, I'm surprised we didn't talk about the score at all, considering you're such a scorehead because, well, I know, man, (laughs) this is the original score. The one on this restoration. Oh, really? Yeah. That is the music composed for the movie at the time. And what's, important about it is that the score sheets as you might remember from the the documentary they even talked about this the, the original score sheets they had uh notations about the edit and it was that information that helped them do the restoration of the edit also and so they were able to use the score to go back and fix the edit that also informs the score how cool so, is that how cool yeah, is so. that yeah the, the score is great uh and that's one of the reasons why i'm excited about checking out the other version just to kind of hear the, yeah. the other score 
Uh, and, and I know this gets performed live. Uh, listener of the show, been on the show, uh, Rich Chamberlain, uh, was telling me on Facebook just the other day, I think even earlier today, that he had seen this live somewhere and they brought in a, a different musician altogether who did this original score for it. So <laughs> there's got to be a lot of different musical takes on this that I'd love to hear. I have not seen an actual film remake attempted. But there have been stage versions that have been attempted sure. and, and one that was successful in the late 80s in London. There have been rumors of another one getting put together. And I'm trying to remember where I've heard the rumors. But there was a producer trying to put together a stage version that had uh, music by Metallica. <laughs> wow. Now, I don't think that's going to come to pass. I think that was just somebody attempted that at one point. But uh, I thought that was fascinating. <laughs> In 2002, friend of the show, Randy Bowser, uh, who did the Karloff One Man Show, he was involved in a version of a musical version of Metropolis that actually was shown in Salem, Oregon. Yes, that's right. Yes, there was a later one, too. That's yeah. right. Big fan of what Randy does. And uh, yeah, I mean, he's a monster kid, too. So, of course, he took a shot at Metropolis. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's wonderful I, you know like i said we can keep going on and on and on about this thing but yes. we probably ought to start bringing this to a close is there <laughs> anything else we want to talk about before we do that i don't know derek i think we've covered an awful lot <laughs> yeah it's it's a wonderful film uh you're i'm blown away uh it's amazing uh, <laughs> here I'll, I'll throw in one last thing okay I mean, it's okay maybe a, maybe a little name droppy but i just thought about this the fritz lang interview mm-hmm. by william freakin I've met William Freakin, and so I can say I'm one step away of having met Fritz Lang. There you go. Okay. All right. You, you, you <laughs> one up on me, man. <laughs> uh, if you go, it's a stretch. I yeah, know. Well, you know, I'll make sure there's links in the show notes for people to buy their own copy of Metropolis if they don't already have it, and I'll make sure it's the Kino version so that you know listeners in the U.S. can actually play it in their Blu-ray machine. Yeah. I will say that the uh, Region B version that I have, when I put it in my Blu-ray player, I didn't switch it over from Region A to Region B yet. So I got, I think, one of the best "Sorry, we can't play this" messages mm-hmm. on my screen, and it's uh, a shot from the film of all the close-ups of the people's eyes when they're watching Maria dance <laughs> and it's like sorry you can't watch this here there's all these crazy looking eyes at me oh, i thought about great. taking a picture of it and posting it somewhere i probably still will uh, but <laughs> that was a fun little treat too according to dvdcompare.net the best version to get on blu-ray is germany's release that warner put out because supposedly it's got more extras on it i don't know if it's subtitled for english speaking yeah <laughs> audiences but i'm very happy with what i have and it sounds like you are with yours indeed so check it out Charles, I'm so glad we did this. I really am, dude. This has been so much fun. Yes, absolutely. And I thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. And uh, I know we've talked about some future episodes. So we'll you know, sure. have something to look forward to there. Yeah, a couple things to come up in this very conversation. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And and I will, uh, like I said, hopefully be back on a, well, I know I will be back on an episode or two of KaijuCast right on. later on. So everybody should go check out KaijuCast if they haven't already. In fact, last week's episode, I mentioned that I was in the Ultra Q episode over there. Kyle's just a great guy. And yes. Kyle produces his podcast to a level that blows me away. Hey, there's my phrase again. I'm blown away. <laughs> there we go. And I'm amazed. Hey, there you go. Thanks again, man. No, I. you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Charles, 
thank you for doing this. Thanks for being so flexible with my schedule. And thanks for sticking with me as we kept trying to figure out a way to make this happen. I had a grand time talking about Metropolis with you. And I've been taking notes during that conversation. Two or three different topics came up for potential future show ideas. I got to have you back on and Yeah, like I said, let's not wait forever. This time around, let's just look at the calendar and stare at it until it starts cooperating with us and we'll get you back on later this year. And listeners, like I said, I'll make sure there are links in the show notes for you to pick up your own copy of Metropolis on Blu-ray from Amazon. If you buy it that way, we get a few cents per sale, so it kind of helps support the show that way. Also, there will be links to the various websites and YouTube videos that came up during that conversation as well. Thanks again, Charles. I really appreciate it. Enterprise log, Captain James Kirk commanding. We are leaving that vast cloud of stars and planets which we call our galaxy. The question, what is out there in the black void beyond? This is Captain Kirk of the USS Enterprise. Is there anyone on board? Is there anyone on board? Have you raised anyone, Lieutenant? Nothing, sir. It is an unmanned probe which seems to be carrying a warhead. William Shatner stars as Captain Kirk and Leonard Nimoy as science officer Spock on Star Trek in color. If somebody asked you to describe a movie to them, what would you say? Would you say that Guardians of the Galaxy is Star Wars meets the A-Team, or that Jurassic Park is Westworld meets the Lost World? The X meets Y pitch is a long-standing Hollywood tradition, one that's been used to sell plenty of movies that otherwise probably wouldn't have been made. But instead of starting with a script and comparing it to two movie titles for an X meets Y pitch, what if we started with two movie titles and improvised the pitch? Well, on my podcast, X Meets Y, that's exactly what we do. I'm Jonathan Inbody, and each episode, I and a guest will randomly select two movie titles, and then we have half an hour to come up with a new original movie idea that could be described as Movie X Meets Movie Y. We've done episodes like Ocean's Eleven Meets 2001 A Space Odyssey, Godzilla Meets Old Yeller, and Robocop Meets Dead Poet Society. Basically, it's a half-hour sprint through a brainstorming session, and it is a lot of fun. If any of that sounds even the slightest bit fun to you, then you should give X Meets Y a listen. It's available wherever you find your podcasts or at xmeetsy.libsyn.com. Hopefully, you'll hear my voice again very soon, but for now, enjoy the rest of your regularly scheduled podcast, you lucky so-and-so. This is just the beginning of the wildest, weirdest adventure you've ever seen. I don't care for playing fair, I'm not the sharing kind. Now anything goes. And everything grows. This is where the fun really began. I wonder if this makes everything grow. Hey, will you cut it out and leave it alone, huh? Listen, Freddy boy, if I want to try some of this stuff, just don't you try and stop me, understand? And try it, they did. 
going to take over this town. Now, first of all, there's going to be a nine o'clock curfew for all adults. It's wild. It's way out. It's Village of the Giants. Whether you like it or not, little man, we're just going to have to show you what's good for you, that's all. Maybe we don't like your club either. You're in it anyway. See what happens when young rebels explode <clears throat> 30 feet tall. Village of the Giants. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you guys and gals for listening and being part of the show this week. I really had fun putting this one together. Big thanks to Charles, of course. Big thanks to Kenny. And big thanks to Jerry for providing a bedtime story from Professor Frenzy. And we've already got the next two installments of Professor Frenzy's bedtime stories in the podcast can. So yeah, you got more good stuff coming. If you have any comments about anything that you heard on this episode of Monster Kid Radio, uh, Metropolis, Men in Ape movies, uh, Famous Monsters of Filmland, you have any memories about Famous Monsters of Filmland, you want to talk about what Jerry's been sending in with the bedtime stories, give me a call. Our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Or you can send us an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Of course, our contact information is available on our website over at monsterkidradio.net. In the show notes, you're going to find links to everything that we talked about here on the show, even a link to the Volcanics website, which we'll talk about here in a second. You can also go through the archives and listen to the previous 413 episodes of the podcast. Find our Tee Public store if you want to buy a t-shirt, or if you want to pick up your own copy of the ebook that I personally just released called Monster Hunter for Hire. It is the first volume in the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files series of books. It's a collection of short stories. You can get it for $2.99 for your Kindle, and hopefully by tomorrow you'll be able to get it as a print edition as well the dead tree or what i'm calling the undead tree edition of the book and that's going to be for six dollars again i'll make sure there's links in the show notes and i just appreciate all of your support there there's still time for you to vote in the rondo awards this year the rondo hatton classic horror awards you know we're running out of time believe april 20th is the cutoff so head over to rondoaward.com if you haven't already done so to check out the ballot monster kid radio is listed there under the best multimedia category for the podcast for everything that we've been doing here and it's really an honor to be listed with so many other amazing multimedia projects also again i mentioned it with charles i'll mention it here we really are pushing for kyle yount to be inducted into the monster kid hall of fame there are many, many reasons, but uh, I hope you trust me when I say he deserves it. So 
head over to roundoaward.com, learn how you can vote, or just flat out email David Colton, the man who runs the Rondos. His email address is T, as in Tom, A-R-A-C as in cat, O, at AOL.com. If nothing else, just let him know that Kyle Yount needs to be in the Hall of Fame. So what's coming up next week here on the show? We're going to bring back an old friend, author, monster kid, fan, friend. Stephen D. Sullivan is going to be coming back here to the show. And we're going to be talking about not one, not two, but three movies. Kinda. I think the best way to put it is that we're going to be talking about the Russian science fiction film Planeta Burr, which I may or may not be pronouncing correctly. This movie was released in 1962 in the Soviet Union and then was released again here in the States on television in 1965, kind of, sort of, when it was chopped up and called Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet. You know, some extra footage was added with Basil Rathbone and Faith Demurg. And then a few years later, we also saw it recut again with even more footage starring Mamie Van Dorn and a few others. Voyage to the Planet of Prehistoric Women is what that was called. This is an interesting one, an interesting take, and I'm excited to get into that next week. So come back to the show for that. Between now and then, hopefully this weekend, you're going to get a bonus episode where Steve Turek and I update you on the Monster Movie Madness 2019 bracket and let you know what movies are advancing from the first round and then letting you know how you can vote in the second round. That'll be coming. Stay tuned. You don't have to do anything special. Just Download the show as you normally would. Just know that either Saturday or Sunday, that'll be available for you as well. I think that's pretty much it. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. I do want to, again, thank Jerry Green. The Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories is his creation. He owns the rights to that. The Volcanics own the rights to their own music. But the rest... All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Again, we're going to be playing the song Sunset Rider from the upcoming album Forgotten Cove from The Volcanics. You can find them at thevolcanics.com. You can pick up their albums digitally on Amazon. You can check out the record label at hightiderecordings.com. And like I said, they're going to be at Viva Las Vegas Tiki Pool Party later this month. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week, or actually in a couple of days. Ciao.